We are almost half, or virtually halfway through Mark's Gospel. Next week will be the climax, kind of pivotal point of the whole of the Gospel. And if you've been here all time, or if you've not been here much, maybe it's your first time with us this evening, looking at Mark's Gospel, we have seen Jesus revealed to us by Mark. You've heard his teachings, the claims that he's been making that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, has come. You've seen him heal, raise the dead, calm the storm, command nature, drive out demons, display great power before us. We've also witnessed the different responses from the crowd, from the Pharisees, the religious rulers, and also the disciples, Jesus' chosen followers. And so this evening I want to ask you the question, what is your response? What has been your response to Jesus as you have witnessed him these last weeks and months? What is your response to Jesus? What's your response to his person, to his character, his power, his position as he claims to be the Son of God? And his purpose, his mission, as he's come into the world to be the Messiah to rescue his people from us. What has been your response? The four keys that come up with. The person, power, position, and purpose of Jesus. Do you believe in who Jesus claims to be? Have you put your trust in him? And if you have, are you still putting your trust in him day by day? If not, or if it's hard, if it's a struggle to trust Jesus, or if there's a temptation to stop trusting in Jesus, what are the things, what are the things that stop us or hinder us or keep us from trusting in Jesus? Faced with the eyewitnesses, the eyewitness accounts that we have here in Mark, the real life drama of Jesus, what causes us to stop trusting? Maybe for you it's, you just, completely deny it all. You completely reject these gospel accounts. They're not real, they're not true. Maybe you doubt it, so you see what happens, but you doubt that it happened the way that the Bible says it does. Maybe there are other explanations that you can come up with about what Jesus has done. Maybe you see it all and you accept it, but it's not quite convinced. Maybe you would like just a little bit more evidence. Maybe Maybe we just keep forgetting. We keep forgetting about Jesus, what we've seen, who he is. We're not as made as we're not as amazed. We are not as amazed as those who witness Jesus are. Maybe you do believe that I was for them. And now we're not quite sure whether Jesus is the same. That he can do the same thing, so he can that he wants to do the same things. Maybe we're just so familiar with Jesus that we don't recognize him. We don't see him as he works. And, and so when we doubt him in our life, it can cause us to stop trusting him. If any of those, any of those responses are really true for you. If we come to yet another miracle of Jesus, we could say, let's just skip this one. We've seen one very like it just recently in view of the 5,000, so let's, let's skip it, let's move on to something a bit more juicy, East of the Pharisees, that sounds interesting, let's move on to that quickly. 
But I expect that each of us, including myself, in some way we can have one of those responses to Jesus, even if we've been a Christian a long time. You know that as Jesus told us last a couple of weeks ago, that the real problem in humanity <coughs> is our hearts. That we have hard hearts. <coughs> and even as Christians, our hearts can lead us astray. We know that naturally they're full of sin. We want to rebel and disobey. We're prone to deny what's being so clear and obvious. It's our hearts that keep us from trusting in Jesus. And so this evening is look again at Jesus. The warning is not to harden your hearts. The dangers of hardening your hearts. But the encouragement is to not harden them, but to look to Jesus. To trust in him. To allow him to change your heart. And to, to shape your heart. So let's look at this feeling of the four thousand. <clears throat> Verse 1, we see the scene set. Jesus has been spending some time with his disciples away in Gentile territory. He's been trying to rest, perhaps teach his disciples, training them up, sharing with them the good news. And now another large crowd has gathered around Jesus. Like the Jewish crowds earlier on in Mark's Gospel, they've seen Jesus, they've heard him, they may well have heard the reports of what happened with the deaf and weak man from the last, the last passage. And they too have come to Jesus, they've come to receive something from him, they've come to follow him and to hear his teaching. And you see that they've been following him for three days, first two, wandering around far away from their homes. People have been caught up in the moment, they're far, far away from home, and now they find themselves without food. And so Jesus' response, as it is with the 5,000, is that he has compassion. And so we see something of his person, his character. He has compassion, he wants to feed them, he doesn't want them to have to wander home over rugged terrain where they may collapse. A long distance, but he wants to, to feed them. And so this time, instead of five loaves and two fish, we have seven loaves and a few small fish. Jesus gets the crowd to sit down, gives thanks, breaks the bread, distributes it to his disciples and to the crowd. Fan showed us a few weeks ago that this whole scene that the, the Jews witnessed is breaking the bread, the distribution, God providing all this food. It sparked something in their minds. They, they remembered back to the Old Testament and God providing for them in the wilderness. And they, they saw, hey, this, this is the guy, this is the one, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah that is to come. And the crowd was stirred. Jesus identified himself with God, Messiah that is to come, the one who will provide for his people. So again, we get flips, glimpses and a reminder of Jesus and his position. He is the one was come. But here we don't see he's not only the Messiah for the Jews, for Israel, but he's the Messiah for the Gentiles too. He's come to be the saviour of all people, including us. We've seen his, his purpose, his position, and we catch a glimpse of his purpose in this the one who's come to be the saviour of the world. Come to heal and deliver, yes, but ultimately to bring in his kingdom, the kingdom of God for all people. And as we continue on in Mark's Gospel, we'll learn more and more about what this kingdom is, what it's about, what it looks like. 
what it means to be a part of the kingdom. We'll learn those things in, in future weeks. Person, position, purpose, and then what we see is amazing power. Verse 8, the food has gone out. People ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciple picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 presents. And don't be deceived by the numbers. Although there were only seven baskets as opposed to the twelve before, these baskets were probably big hamper-sized baskets. So there could well have been more food left over. Jesus has yet again showed his, showed his incredible power on display for all people to marvel, to be amazed at. This is Jesus that we have seen once again, showing us who he is, what he can do, his purpose, his mission. And so what stops us? What stops us from trusting in Jesus? I want to suggest as we move on and meet the Pharisees once again, as we see the disciples in the boats, that we get a glimpse of some of the, the ways and the reasons that can stop us from trusting in Jesus. Firstly, just deny. Deny the evidence. Maybe that's you this evening. Seeing, once again, the evidence of who Jesus says, what he can do. You've seen, you've heard the stories, you've witnessed the reports, but you can't believe that they're true. Perhaps you've seen the things Jesus has done, but you deny that the power is from God, as the Pharisees did. Maybe you're persuaded by other explanations that people have given to what Jesus has done here. Jesus and his disciples have travelled back over to Jewish territory, and the Pharisees have come out to question Jesus. In verse 11, they've come to test him, Mark tells us. But they haven't come with genuine interest and questions so they want answers so they can know Jesus better. They've come to tempt him, to discredit him. You see, the Pharisees, who were already made up their mind, they decided they want to reject Jesus and his authority. They didn't deny that he had done the miracles, we saw that earlier on, but they denied that the power that Jesus did the miracles wasn't from God. And they accredited and attributed it to Satan. Jesus had given them an answer for why it can't possibly be from Satan. But they still rejected Jesus. Why? Jesus is their Messiah, he's come to be their king, and yet they denied him and walked away. Pharisees, as we saw this morning, if you were in the service this morning, were people who are mad on the law. But they'd also created their own separate traditions, things to, to add on to the law that God had given. And they had interpreted the law in their own way, and these things had just led them astray from the truth that God had revealed. And so along comes Jesus, son of God, who keeps the law, and who shows what the law really means, and how, you sh- how we really should follow the law. And Jesus is making these great claims that they're incorrect, then yes, he's going against the law. But because the Pharisees see one way and Jesus sees another way, there's conflict, there's opposition. Jesus is different. He's not one of us. He doesn't do the things we do. He doesn't fall in line with our rules and regulations. And so he's rejected. And they're just dismissing. The king's come. 
but it doesn't fit into their box. Does Jesus fit into your box? Should he fit into your box? How do you explain the thing that Mark shows us? To be explained away the miracles is fables, exaggerations, demon possession, that was just mental illness. Jesus didn't really walk on water, he walked on a sandbank near the edge. Lots of different explanations that people, that scholars, so-called Christians give for what, these, what happened in those days, except none of these claims, none of these explanations have any standing, any grounds. They're just made of reasons. They're just reasons for us not to believe, to remain part of it. We've seen in Mark's Gospel, which is trustworthy, historical account of all that Jesus is, his power. He's able to do these things and much more. Let's not doubt. Let's not doubt the evidence. Secondly, maybe you demand more proof. Perhaps you don't completely deny the things that you see here. Well, you're not going to reject Jesus, but actually you're not fully convinced by it. Maybe like the Pharisees, you want to ask for a sign. The Pharisees, as we said earlier, didn't really want, weren't really interested in Jesus' response. But maybe you are. Witness Jesus, perhaps, through here, maybe through somewhere else. You, you, you're learning about who this person is. I'm not fully convinced yet. And you don't want just one more sign, one more thing, and then I will believe. Have you ever found yourself, or maybe have you heard friends or colleagues say, if Jesus were here today, then yes, I would believe in him. If he would do a miracle in my life, then I would trust in him. But we see in Mark's Gospel that many people saw many miracles of Jesus. They saw his power right there in front of them. But they still didn't. We could ask ourselves if we were there, if we were back on that day with Jesus, seeing the power that he has, would we have believed? How do we know if we would? There's no reason that Jesus did a miracle today that we would believe. Commanding one more piece of evidence is, is just procrastinating. Putting off the decision to make the decision to follow Jesus. It might even simply be a polite way of rejecting, saying, I don't believe. Mark has given us evidence. You have the eyewitnesses' accounts. They're reliable, trustworthy. So don't, don't harden your hearts. The Jews were demanding a sign. They wanted a cosmic sign from heaven to prove that Jesus was from God. Jesus, of course, he could have given a sign. Like Elijah, he could have called down fire from heaven and... Well, would that have satisfied him? Who knows? Jesus sighs deeply in verse 12 and he says, Why does this generation ask for a sign? And then in judgment he says, Truly no sign will be given. They want to see his credentials. Jesus has proved his credentials for the last eight chapters. No sign will be given for a stubborn 
rebellious people. Friends, asking for a miracle by prayer is not that. It's not unbelief. But asking for a sign that Jesus would prove himself is a sign of unbelief. If you're interested in Christianity, if you're investigating these things and you've seen things in Mark, then don't keep putting him off. Keep asking questions, but don't keep demanding for more evidence. The problem the Pharisees had was that their heart, their heart were hardened. And so Jesus, he leaves the Pharisees in verse 13 and gets back into the boat, crosses over to the other side. He leaves them physically, but also at this point in Mark, he's beginning to leave them spiritually too. As he turns his, his body away from Galilee, heads for Jerusalem, Pharisees were rejected him off, left behind, with their hard hearts. And that's the warning of the Gospel. We keep rejecting, keep putting it off. The more evidence we see, the more hard our hearts will become. So let's keep trusting in Jesus. Thirdly, maybe we can doubt, maybe we cannot put our trust in Jesus because of what the world has to say. Between verse 13, then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed over to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, and that of Herod. Yeast in the New Testament, like it is for us, is its agent for causing bread to rise. Put it in the bread dome, as it cooks, rises. Jesus likens the kingdom of God to yeast in the Gospels, as it grows and spreads throughout the world. But usually in the New Testament, yeast is an example, it's a metaphor used negatively. Related to the spreading of bad teaching, bad behaviour. And that's how it's used here. Jesus is talking about the false teaching, false behaviour of the Pharisees and Herod. If you read Matthew's account, if that's clear to us, this is the false teaching of the Pharisees. Be careful, he's warning them against the false teaching. Those who are in opposition, those who reject me, they need to be careful. Why? Well, because these Pharisees are the respected leaders. They're the ones who know the law. They're the ones who teach the law. Surely what they say, what they preach is right. They have the authority. They have recognized. People will listen to them. People follow them. Those who work with Herod too, they have power. But yet they've got their own ideas about Israel, about the future. So these two groups who have rejected Jesus, they're going to spread lies. They're going to teach contrary truth. They're going to persuade people to reject Jesus. People will listen to them. They will take their authority about Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, why don't you accept the things of the gospel? Is it because the leaders of the society, those experts, have taught us the Bible is wrong, it's untrustworthy. Do we reject the Bible because of such insights, such teaching of those who have a professional opinion? And we listen to that and we say, yeah, well, it's good enough for me. 
If you're a Christian here this evening, why are you a Christian? It's a good question to ask yourselves. Is it just because your parents taught you the gospel as a child? Is it because a Sunday school teacher taught it to you when you were younger? Or have you truly investigated the facts for yourself? You see, there will come a day when we will have to give an account to the Lord for what we have done with the things that we know. And we are all responsible for what we believe. And so we hear the arguments, we hear the opinions of experts in the world, and sometimes then it can be convincing. Interesting research. But these things need to be challenged, they need to be questioned. So when a scientist says there is no God, we can explain life by natural selection, let's investigate it, let's see is it really true. When a philosopher or a postmodernist says there's no such thing as absolute truth, therefore we can't trust the Bible as truth, let's ask the question, is that true, is it right? Or is no absolute truth just an absolute statement? Why do we believe in Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. Surely he has all the authority in heaven and earth. He created heaven and earth. We can trust him. He's good and true and, and kind and caring and compassionate. He is without sin. He's not lying to us. We can trust what he says. Don't give in to different beliefs. But those different beliefs, views and opinions of the world can cause us as Christians to doubt as well. A few weeks ago, Charlie took us through chapter 4 and we were thinking about the parables of the soils. And that parable tells us that there are different responses to Jesus. And people who have different responses to Jesus have so that comes from their heart. Those who reject Jesus are those who have hard hearts. For they see, they have ears, eyes, and they see, ears, and they hear, but yet they just don't understand. Well, the disciples, they're in danger of falling into the same trap. Here they are in the boat, they've forgotten bread, they're frustrated with one another, blaming one another perhaps, they're distracted by their troubles. And so when Jesus comes and he says, be careful, watch out for the yeast, of the Pharisees. They're thinking, what are you talking about? They think literally yeast, and they say, is it because we have no bread? In verse 16. And Jesus says, why, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? We've seen Jesus. He's proven to us who he is, but yet the world will tell us opposite things. We'll seek to present evidence that is not true. And we can be influenced by such things. These attacks will come from the world. And even if we've been a Christian for a long time, maybe we were convinced these things are true. We are secure in our faith. We believe what the Bible says. But yet the world will still try to discredit us, discredit Jesus, just like the Pharisees have done. So when we come to share our faith, there will be opposition. There will be those who have denied it, those who doubted it. And so the question is, are we prepared for it? Are we prepared for the opposition that we might face? Many of you here are 
students at Oxford University, and as you know, Mission Week next week. A week-long series of lunchtime talks, evening events, gospel proclamation. And if you haven't experienced opposition to the gospel, then maybe next week you will. If you invite your friends along, as you hear what your classmates have to say in response to you sharing the gospel, we know, don't we, that often when we talk about the Bible, when we mention Jesus, Christianity, then people are often in opposition to that, in antagonistic cases. They reject it. They come with questions that are hard. They come with statements and, and evidence to prove our, our beliefs are wrong. They come with their own worldview. They come with their so-called higher authority, that is their defense. And they'll look down on you. They'll say, you believe this stuff? It's so primitive, so simple. And so when faced, not just in the mission, but in life generally, faced with scientific experts, philosophical opinion, or anything else, these things can overwhelm us. They can put pressure on us. They can even cause us to doubt and to worry and to fear. Is it really true? Now what we shouldn't do is go to them and blindly say, no, you're wrong. But as Christians we need to engage. We need to be able to communicate and give good and reasonable answers to the opposition that we face. And we can do just that because we have Jesus who is powerful, Jesus who is the Son of God, Jesus who proved himself. And as we investigate people's arguments, as we think about what they say, we realise that there are good, reasonable answers. I remember when I was a student, one of the things that helped me a lot when it came to evangelism was just going along to evangelistic talks, hearing a good defence of the gospel being made. And it encouraged me. Okay, yeah. A good answer to that question that I had last week, wasn't it? Next week the lunchtime talks are in the form of a question. Because hopefully the questions that are being asked in the talks are the questions the students are asking themselves. Things that stand in their way, doubts and denials and opposition they have to the gospel, or they're going to be answered in these lunchtime talks. What about in the church? We correctly teach the Bible, training people in righteousness, but do we not also need to prepare people with a good biblical response for the attacks that we get from the world? So we need to look at what we're teaching. What are we teaching our children? Are we equipping them to stand up for Jesus? As we teach them the stories of Jesus, can we also teach them that these things are true? That these accounts are reasonable, they're defensible, they're consistent, they're trustworthy. These things really did happen, and they're life-changing. We can trust in Jesus, so let's be careful and watch out for the yeast of the leaders and the experts of our day. And let's not doubt the world's opposition. And then finally, another thing that could stop us Trusting in Jesus Christians is that we can simply be distracted. We can be distracted by our present circumstances. It's ironic, isn't it, as we see Jesus feeding 4,000 people with seven words. In the next scene, we have a few disciples and boats with one left. And they're complaining and their worries and their concerns and they only have one more left. It's not enough to feed them for the next while. 
and they blame one another. They think, how are we going to get more bread? And Jesus says, why? Why are you talking about not having, having no bread? Do you not understand? Are your hearts still hard? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand people? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? When I broke seven loaves for the four thousand people, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. Do you still not understand? Are we distracted by other things? Do we still not see who Jesus is and what he can do? The disciples have completely missed the point. They haven't got it. They don't realise who this is sitting right in the boat with them. Their hearts are hardened. They're distracted by their own concern. They've taken their eyes off Jesus. They've forgotten what he's just done earlier on that day. They've seen Jesus perform the miracles, and yet they've so quickly forgotten. They may have even simply doubted that Jesus could even hold his one life. Maybe they're ungrateful for what Jesus has done, and they're just no longer amazed by his provision. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their own belief. They do believe. They're with Jesus. They're following him. They're learning from him. With their faith, all over the place. They believe in Jesus, like many of us, I'm sure, do. But they sometimes struggle to see him at work in their own lives. And that can easily be done, and we all do. Life is difficult. There are trials, there are difficulties, there are circumstances that we face that seem hard, and they can distract us from Jesus. We can take our eyes off him. We know who Jesus is. We know he has the power. But sometimes, in this specific situation, we just don't think he can do something. Maybe our troubles have been around for a long time. Maybe our prayers just aren't being answered. Maybe change just seems impossible. Let's take our eyes off of the problem and look to Jesus, the one who can solve it. Jesus himself presents a problem at the beginning of our passage. I have compassion on these people. They're hungry, they have nothing to eat. Disciples respond in the wrong way. They say, but, but where in this remote place can we get any enough bread to feed them? But they've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people earlier on. Shouldn't that not their response be, well, Jesus, hey, here's some loaves and some fish. You can provide. We trust in you. You've seen you do before. You believe you can do it. And so as we see Jesus, as we see him in our own lives, as we testify to what he's done for us, let's be thankful. Thankfulness for who Jesus is and what he's done helps us so much in trusting him in the future. Often we can be so familiar with Jesus, so familiar with our work as Christians that we don't recognise him when he hears at work. And so we miss it. And therefore we're not thankful because we didn't see it. When we are thankful, when we do recognise Jesus, when our hearts are soft for him, we see him. And we pray for the next time. When we step out in faith and trusting him, when we don't know the answer, when we can't see the solution, we know that he can and he does. No sign will be given to this generation. 
But when our eyes are open, when we see Jesus, we see him and work on it. He's proved himself to us in Scripture. He's proved himself to us in our own lives. Let him prove himself to you today. God has revealed himself through his Son. He speaks to us through his word. So let's not harden our hearts. We trust in him.